Thanks so much, Samantha, for playing for us tonight. Well, we're in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 6, and uh, if you need a copy of the lesson, just raise your hand. Men will bring that right by. Make sure you have a copy of uh, our study tonight. We're entitled this, he, uh, Solomon is prepares for the preeminence of God. And we've been going through the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple after it was built. And so we're down to Second Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 40. Now, my God, let I beseech thee, uh, thine eyes be open, and let thine ears be attend, attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, into thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy strength, and let thy priest, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let thy saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, turn not away thy faith, the face of thine anointed. Uh, remember the mercies of David, thy servant. And so he's preparing for the preeminence of God. When we talk about preeminence, preeminence means of the greatest importance or the highest degree. And as uh, Solomon is bringing this prayer to a close, he's acknowledging the fact that God should receive the highest degree of acknowledgement in reference to how he is uh, uh, in the presence of his people and how he can hear and answer our prayers. Uh, he needs to have the priority of his people upon him. The Apostle Paul is very direct in his recognition of this position of Christ in reference to having the preeminence. And I think sometimes we forget what preeminence is and what it's all about. But as a Christian, we're, we have to acknowledge the fact that our God has to have first place. He must have the preeminence. And in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul says, and he is, that's speaking about Christ, he is the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And as Solomon closes his prayer, he's acknowledging that God is to have that preeminence in uh, fulfilling the, worship, the people's worship and uh, the uh, filling of the uh, presence of God in the temple, that God may be that first one in place. And so Paul identifies Christ in Colossians 1, 18, as the head. He is the head. Preeminence means he is the head. He is the head of the church. I'm thankful that he is the shepherd of our soul. The pastor may be the under-shepherd of Christ, but the pastor is not the head. Christ is the head. And I think sometimes we forget when it comes to worship, when it comes to prayer, uh, we must establish the fact that, that there is one who takes the priority and that's Jesus Christ. And so he is the head. Paul goes on to say that he is the beginning. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. And so everything starts and finishes on Christ. And uh, he is before all things. You know, when we talk about creation, it says in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. So he has the preeminence in creation. He is the beginning of everything. Uh, Jesus said, upon this rock, referring to himself, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why? Because the church begins 
and ends with Jesus Christ. And so he has the preeminence. And whenever we talk about prayer, we are praying in light of the preeminence of God. And so he is the head, he is the beginning. Then Paul also states that he is the firstborn, uh, firstborn from among the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. In other words, his resurrection, he arose and defeated the power of the grave and the work of the devil. Uh, he destroyed the, the uh, influence and the power of the flesh to bring death upon us. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is resurrected because he is alive and we too will be able to live because of the fact that Christ died and was buried and he rose again. And so Solomon is concluding with this relationship that his people have with their God, that God must have the preeminence. So we've gone through this prayer in Second Chronicles 6. And uh, Solomon begins to start out the prayer. It's just a reminder here that he prays uh, the person of his God. And certainly when we go to the Lord in prayer, we're acknowledging that there is a God in heaven who is aware of who we are and what our needs are. And so he praises the person of his God. Then he continues in that prayer and ponders about the provision of God. And God can take care of you. And we sing that song, God can take care of you. And uh, he can. Peter said, casting all your cares on him, for he careth for you. And so Solomon, in his prayer, uh, reviews in his mind and meditates upon the reality of God's provision for his people. Then he proclaimed the promises of God and how precious it is for us to be able to get a promise from God and hold on to it. On God's men's meeting on Monday night, I preached on Caleb. Caleb said when he went into the promised land and crossed over Jordan, he said, I want that mountain. And uh, why did he want that mountain? Because God had promised that possession. And he wanted that because God was able to give that promise and that possession to him. And so as believers, when we pray, we pray on the foundation and basis that God has made present promises to us, and God is able to deliver the promises that he has made. And then he pleaded, we saw last week, he pleaded for the presence of God, and we're thankful that Jesus promised he would never leave us nor forsake us. And when we're praying, we are assured of the fact that God is with us when we are praying. Jesus, where two or three are gathered together, uh, I am in the midst, and so knowing that Jesus is with us, he is here tonight. And I love that song, he is here, hallelujah. He is here, amen. And I think sometimes we forget that God is ever-present with us. And now, uh, last week, uh, we looked at the pardon of God, and we're thankful that when we cry out to God and we confess our sins before the Lord, uh, that he sends a pardon uh, because Christ has paid the debt, he has made his offering for us, and because of that, we can be completely released from the shackles of the sin that binds us up and destroys us and causes us to have to face eternity of torment, and it's because of the pardon of God. And uh, David would cry out to the Lord, for him to, to pardon him of his sins, forgive him of his sins. And uh, certainly he experienced that forgiveness and that pardon from God. And Solomon acknowledges that in this prayer. And now he concludes with the reality that 
in reference to all these things that the conclusion is that God must have the preeminence. He must be first on the list. He doesn't take second place to someone else. And when we deal with our worship, when we deal with our living, we deal with our giving, when we deal with every aspect of our life as a Christian, everything points to Christ as taking the priority. He must have the preeminence. And that's how Solomon closes this prayer. So let's think about this tonight, about the preeminence of God. And I thought in verse 40 about the preeminence of God, preeminence in our prayer. In verse 40, it says, And now, my God, let I beseech thee, thine eyes be open, and thine ears be attend attend, uh, unto the prayer that is made in this place. And so as he cries out to his God, he is acknowledging the fact that he needed God to not only see, but to hear and to be there present in the place where they would offer up their prayers. And uh, notice, first of all, the direction, the direction. He says, I beseech thee, uh, thine eyes be open unto the, uh, and thy ears be attent unto the prayer that is made in this place. The offering up of their prayer was directed uh, towards their God. And uh, Psalm, and I, I put a lot of Psalms in here, and I thought it would be good for us to look at these different verses as we go through and contemplate this matter of the preeminence of the Lord. In uh, Psalm 69 and verse 13, it says, But as for me, my prayer is unto thee. And see, Solomon, when he's acknowledging uh, his prayer to, in the temple in verse 40, he's acknowledging the direction of his prayer. He wanted to direct his prayer to the God who could see, the God who could hear, and the God who was with them. And so the psalmist says, But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in acceptable, acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of thy mercy hear me, and in the truth of thy salvation. So when I pray towards the Lord, as Solomon is acknowledging the people of Israel were to pray towards the Lord, towards that temple that was built, they were, they were accepting of God's timing. He said in his acceptable time that God would hear and that God would respond. And uh, uh, sometimes we want to get ahead of the Lord and we just be, need to be willing to accept God's response to us in his timing. In Psalm 116 and verse 2, he says, Because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. And so this timing, as long as I live, I'm directing my prayers towards the Lord in his timing. Why? Because letter A is just simply this. He's attentive. That's why he said, let thine eyes be open towards this place. God is paying attention to us. And when we pray, when we pray with the spirit of preeminence of Christ in our prayers, we're aware of the fact that, wait a minute, the answer may not come right now when I'm praying, but I know this because of the preeminence of the Lord that God is paying attention to me. And we can offer up our prayers and acknowledge the will and the way of God in his perfect timing. 
I'm so thankful for that God's timing in our life. Uh, April came over to the church today and, and was going over some things. I was talking with her and I was just thinking how long she's been waiting for a liver. And uh, the timing of God, we can get frustrated and say, God, we want you to do it right now. Well, wait a minute. If we're aware of the fact that God's paying attention to us, then we can wait on the Lord and let him bring his timing in his perfect way and uh, his perfect time. And so we don't lose sight of the fact the preeminence of Christ is that in my prayer, he is watching me. He's attentive to what my heart aches for and what I need. But not only is he attentive, but he is enduring. And that's why he says in uh, Psalm 116, Therefore will I call upon the Lord on him as long as I live. And so, listen, the God who heard your prayer when you cried out, Lord, save me, is that God will hear your prayer 40 years later when you say, Lord, I need you to help me. And uh, because he does not stop paying attention to us because his response to us is an enduring response because we can continue to call upon him and call upon him and call upon him. And so the direction of my prayer, the priority is I'm going to direct it towards the Lord because he is the one who endures from everlasting to everlasting. So we see the direction of prayer. We see that his preeminence in our prayer is identifying our depending on God's mercy. And uh, so he speaks in reference here of the mercy of God. We must have the mercy of the Lord depending on God's mercy. Daniel chapter 9, and I like how Daniel puts this uh, together for us in reference to praying, in reference to the mercy of God. Daniel chapter 9 in uh, verse 16, Daniel 9 and 16 says, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from the city of Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. And so, Here is a visible condemnation that was upon the people of Israel because they disobeyed their God. They had turned their back on their God. Daniel certainly knew what it was to be carried off into captivity because of their uh, being a reproach upon the name of their God because they disobeyed him. And he's crying out that he needs the mercy of God because of the condemnation that is upon people upon his people. And Solomon, when he's praying, he's acknowledging the fact that we need God to hear us and to see us because there is a visible rebellion against God. And uh, I was writing my pastor's uh, note for the bulletin uh, for Sunday, and I was reading, I started reading through my Bible back in Genesis when I was on a field trip the other day, and I was going through Genesis and just was reading about the wickedness in the days of Noah, and the Lord just laid it on my heart, that, as it was in the days of Noah. And we're in the days of Noah, because every wicked imagination of man's heart is ever before us. And so uh, I, I have to acknowledge the fact 
There is visible condemnation that God is bringing upon this world. And when that takes place, I need to focus on the preeminence of my God in prayer. God, remember us down here. In the midst of all that wickedness, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Condemnation of God was coming, but God was preeminent in providing a way for Noah and his family and literally anyone else who would have got on the ark to be delivered. And so we must depend on God's mercy. And Daniel understood that because of the visible condemnation that was on his people. But there was a viable reconciliation in verse 17 of Daniel's prayer. He says, Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. And Solomon's prayer was, God, look upon this place, look upon this temple, look upon this sanctuary. When we cry out to you, remember mercy and Daniel is crying out, Lord, when you let your face once again shine upon our sanctuary because it's desolate because of the reproach of God's people. And wait a minute, there is a viable way for man to be reconciled unto God, and that is through the mercy that God wants to extend. And so the preeminence of our prayer is not just acknowledging the fact that God is the one who directs our life because the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, but the reality is that God still has mercy to be extended towards us, and we need to focus on that priority. And then there's a valuable supplication in verse 18. It says, Oh, my God, incline thy ear and hear and open thine eyes and behold our desolations. Same as Solomon was praying, Lord, let your eyes see us and let your ears hear us, he cried out. He says, for we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. He's saying, Lord, we're crying out to you not because we're good, not because we deserve something from you, but we're crying out because we need your mercy. And then in verse 19, he says, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, hearken and do, defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. The supplication we cry out unto God is based on the reality that God is identified with us. And God wants us to have the priority of glorifying him and speaking to him in our prayer as we make it in this place. Now there's three aspects of the temple. There's the temple of the Old Testament. We know the, the New Testament. We have our sanctuary. We have our church that we gather in. But ultimately, we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. We're the temple of God. And so the priority or the preeminence in our prayer is God, this man, this man right here needs mercy. This man right here needs your direction. God, look on me, hear me, respond to me, send thy mercy upon me uh, because of the fact that you must be exalted and lifted up and have the priority in my life. Our prayer, it makes a difference how we pray when we realize the preeminence of God. And there's, we're such a selfish society, most of the time we're praying in reference for only our selfish desires and wants. 
And yet God wants us to cry out to him and find out what his perfect will and what his plan is and how to respond on us. So accepting God's timing, depending on God's mercy. And then the last thought for this, the direction is trusting in God's salvation. And God is still in the business of saving people, folks. And God still wants to save people the same old way, the old-fashioned way, the Bible way, and that's through trusting Christ and Christ alone as our means of salvation. You must be born again. The children of Israel needed the forgiveness of God, the deliverance of God, the salvation of God, and uh, Solomon is acknowledging that in this place, in this temple that he built, when the sacrifices are offered and when the prayers are made before the altar, God, remember to give us your salvation. We're trusting in your salvation. So we see uh, this matter of the direction. Then there's the expectation in verse 40. The expectation, let thine ears be attentive unto uh, the prayer that is made in this place. There is an expectation. Their ex Solomon's expectation was when we offer our prayers in this place, God, we expect you to hear us. We expect you to respond to us. And that expectation it fulfills a great hope. There's always hope in God. I tell you, there's many a place and many a time in our life where we can fall into the pits of despair, but there's always hope with God. I love Psalm 43 in uh, verse 5, and uh, we're supposed to constantly hope in the Lord. In Psalm 43, 5 says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. Israel would go through many times of sorrow and many times of disquietness and many times of heartache. But Solomon is saying this, our expectation is when we're disquieted in our soul, we'll look to this place and we'll cry out to you and you'll hear us and you'll heal us and you'll respond to us. And so the expectation in our prayer is that God will continue to build great hope in us. And I, I just am thankful that we can put our hope in God. But it's also having great faith, great faith. Uh, you know, we need to allow the Lord to build our faith. It's through the trials and through the difficulties that we are able to experience great faith. Psalm 17 and verse 7, it says, Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand, them which put their trust in thee, from these that rise up against them. There's many a battle, many a, a conflict, many a place of discouragement, but Solomon knew all these things that Israel would go through, that their hope was in God, and their hope in God would build their faith to trust God more and more each time. You know, the amazing thing is this, the things that, that I've been able to, to experience in my life uh, has not destroyed me. At times, I, I'll tell you, it, I, I thought it was going to destroy me. But I'll tell you, through great times of trials is when we learn uh, that we can trust God, we can direct our prayers towards Him, 
we can allow him to continue to be the one that takes the priority in first place in our life and everything will come out all right on the other side and my faith will grow. And, and we must have an expecting heart that the Lord is going to hear us in this place. So it's having great hope, it's having great faith, but it's also having great peace. And in Philippians chapter 4, be careful for nothing. We know that verse, it means don't be anxious uh, for anything, but in everything, here it is, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made note unto God. Why? Verse 7 answers the reason why. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Israel had gone through 430 years of bondage in Egypt as slaves under the rule and under the thumb, under the authority and the power of the Egyptians, but God brought them out. And when they were wandering in the wilderness, they did not know how they would be able to have their needs met, food and water and shelter, but God provided for them in the wilderness. And God gave them great hope. And throughout the history of Israel, it has been a history where the people of God have had to look to the temple, look to the place where God was identified as dwelling, and knowing that God was there to watch and to hear and to move in their life. The preeminence of our prayer is focused unto our God. Charles Spurgeon said this, True prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It is far deeper than that. It is a spiritual transaction with the creator of heaven and earth. And I think sometimes we forget when we think about the preeminence of prayer, the preeminence of God in our prayer is that we are talking, we're communicating with the creator of this world that we live in. You're speaking to the person who created you when you were conceived in your mother's womb at that moment of conception, you were an individual that was uniquely created by God, and you get to talk to him. So why in the world will we ever neglect establishing that priority of prayer and knowing that God must have the preeminence? It is not, my prayer is not about me. My prayer is about the God who created me and loves me and cares for me. He must have the preeminence in our prayer. Then Solomon in verse 41 deals with the preeminence of God in our sanctuary. He says, now therefore arise, O Lord God, into thy resting place. Now we know God dealt with things with Israel and certainly with Solomon that what temple can you make? What building that you can, can you make that can contain me? But understand the heart of Solomon. He's acknowledging this is where the place is that we're identifying as the dwelling place of God. He says, O Lord, get into thy resting place. Thou and the ark of thy strength, let thy priest, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let thy saints rejoice in goodness. Preeminence in our sanctuary. Notice the offer. The offer is that Solomon, as they built this temple, he's acknowledging to God, this is the place where we desire you to be. This is the place that we identify with, is this is where we meet with our God. What place is your sanctuary? What place do you have where you meet with God? 
What is the place? What is the priority of the place that you have that where you can worship the Lord? And notice it was a creative possession in Isaiah chapter 66. I'll get over there real quick and read this. And Isaiah 66 in verse 1. Isaiah, well, I guess I'll get there real quick. Maybe tomorrow afternoon I'll get there. Amen. Isaiah chapter 66, it says, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Creative possession. God created this world and he created this world that literally all that is created, God sits on top of it. He sits on the throne of it. And so the offer is for Solomon is we built this temple to be identified as the place where you dwell. Arise and come to your resting place. And God says, well, wait a minute. I dwell on the throne of the heavens and the earth is my footstool. And not only is it a creative possession, but it's a meditative expression in verse 66, chapter 66 in verse 1. says, where is the house that you build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? He wanted Solomon to get out of the realm of the physical. He wants us to get out of the realm of the physical and realize there is a spiritual dwelling place of God that is beyond what man can build. But what a wonderful thing that Solomon was able to pray for God's blessing on this temple that identified the place where they would pray unto their God. So there's the offer. There's the observation. In our text, he says that the priest uh, would be clothed with salvation. And uh, literally, he, he's identifying the fact that when we were clothed with salvation, the corruption was removed. Paul speaks about that in Ephesians uh, chapter 4 and verse 22 that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lies. When we talk about worshiping God, we talk about praising the Lord in our sanctuary. We come as saints of God. We come as priests of God. We come clothed with the salvation of God. You can't worship the Lord and meet with God apart from the salvation of God. So corruption is moved, removed. The spirit is renewed in verse 23 and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We as believers have a different approach, a different philosophy, a different awareness of who God is because holiness is received and puts you on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And Solomon is acknowledging this unique relationship with this temple that they built that the priest would be clothed with salvation that made them different, that made them holy, and made them clean. It gave them the ability to come in the presence of a holy God. So there's the offer, there is the observation, and then let her see is the oblation. He said that the saints rejoice in goodness. And there is a confidence that is directed towards the Lord as we come into the sanctuary. You know, people have lost the respect and the sense of understanding the significance and importance of the church house, the church building. It's a place where we gather. This church isn't spiritual, the building, but it becomes spiritual when God's people gather. And the building that Solomon built was not spiritual, 
but it was designed to have the people come and worship their God there. Now, then it becomes a spiritual entity. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, it says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. See, the confidence is directed towards the Lord, not towards ourselves. And so the preeminence of the sanctuary is this is the place where we identify our rejoicing as we worship our God. And of course, there's a continual praise in Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And so this constant experience of the sanctuary of God, the Israelite was to identify every time they saw that temple. It was a magnificent structure that reminded them that they were to praise their God. They were to rejoice in who their God is because God was the uh, preeminent one in the sanctuary. I like what oh, uh, David Jeremiah said. Someone has said that Satan knows nothing of true pleasure and uh, satisfaction, but he is an expert only in amusements. David had learned the difference, and we would do well to imitate him. True pleasure comes from knowing God, being known by God, and being at rest in his presence. Too many Christians are in a spirit of torment because of the fact they have, they have been sold, as it were, this bill of goods from Satan that we must be entertained in this world. And it draws us away from the preeminence of the place where God has designed for us to worship. Israel was not to embrace the crowds and the people of Canaan. They were to separate themselves from Canaan and focus on worshiping their God in the sanctuary that God provided for them. And so there has to be a preeminence in our prayers where God is preeminent. He's first. And there must be a preeminence in our sanctuary. In other words, that's where we worship the Lord and we exalt the name of our God. And then in verse 42, there's the preeminence in our people. He says, O Lord, turn not away the face of thine anointed. Remember the mercies of David thy servant. Notice in, in the anointing of God, in uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 61, uh, once again we read about the prophecy concerning the Messiah that would come and in dealing with this matter of uh, uh, the people of God. In Isaiah 61 in uh, verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So what is this anointing of God? Number one is just simply this, the spiritual call. We know this is verse chapter 61 and verse 1 was fulfilled in Christ when he presented himself in the temple. But it's a spiritual call that God has upon us. There's a healing experience. He says, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek and has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. A person whose life is broken, a person who is aching and hurting, can be healed by the presence of Jesus Christ, by the anointing of God. There's a spiritual call, there's a healing experience, and then there's a liberating message uh, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to open of the prison to them that are bound. And so the anointing of God 
enables us to be set free. And Solomon is acknowledging the fact that this place, this temple that he built, was to remind his people of the preeminence of his people before God, that God has anointed them with a message to be shared. But also in the mercy, it says the mercies of David. And I want you to consider the freeness of salvation. And I'm thankful that God does not make salvation expensive other than it costs his son an awful lot. But he doesn't cost us anything. We trust Christ as our Savior. He says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. He come, uh, yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so I'm glad that God, the only price that he puts on salvation is that what it cost his son dying on the cross. So the freeness of salvation. The covenant of salvation in verse 3 of Isaiah 55, Incline your ear and come unto me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. And when Jesus Christ shed his blood on Calvary, God signed a covenant in the blood of Christ, setting us free, the mercy of God. And then the nearness of salvation. In verse 5, it says, Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. I was talking to one of our teachers this morning, and uh, they were asking me, a uh, person was asking me, what at the rapture, what happens to the children of the adults who are saved? That was a good question. The reality is, you may have children that are 10 or 11 years old, and you got saved when you were younger, but they don't go to church. I know a lot of people in that situation. They're adults. They grew up in church. They got saved when they were in church as children, but now they don't want anything to do with God. They don't want to be in church. They won't bring their Sunday school, their kids to Sunday school or to church. If the rapture was to take place, that parent, they're truly saved, will be taken to heaven. But their children are going to be left behind. And their children are going to have to go through the great tribulation. And their children's going to suffer all those things. And my question is simply this, if you say that you're saved and you say that you love your children, how can you jeopardize their souls to be damned to hell because of the fact you won't teach them about Jesus Christ and you won't take them to church? So the preeminence of God's people is that we pursue and depend upon the mercy of David. So there's the anointing of God, the mercy of David, and then in the service of God, he says, concludes the prayer, thy servant. So there's an inward reverence that takes place that we give ourselves totally and committed unto the Lord as our Savior. There's an inward reverence that takes place, but there's an outward expression. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. There is an outward response. 
And you say, I have an inward experience where I've trusted Christ as my Savior, but you have no outward demonstration of it. It makes you question whether the person is saved or not. It makes you question whether they've committed themselves to the mercy of David. The amazing thing is chapter 7 and verse 1 and 2 is the conclusion of the prayer. Because in verse 42, he finishes his prayer, and it says in chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles, verse 1, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house, and the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. You talk about a powerful prayer. You talk about the prayer of Solomon. The outcome was when he was done praying, the fire of God came down. The outcome was that when he got done praying, the God was so satisfied with the longing of his heart and his presentation of his prayer that God filled the place that the priest couldn't even go into it because of the glory of God was there. Warren Worsby said this, Daniel gave all the glory to God. He took none of it for himself. There is no limit to what God will do for the believer who will let God have all the glory. I, I, I am afraid that we have become such a selfish society that we think everything is about us. It's not about us. It is about Jesus Christ. And when we talk about preeminence, that's what we mean. It is not about us. It is everything about Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry said this, If we would be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. And we would be more jealous for the glory of God than for any interest or reputation of our own. Solomon, as he's going through this prayer... His complete focus all the way through this prayer was everything that was focused towards his God. He longed to praise his God. He started out praising his God. He acknowledges the provisions of God. He is aware of the promises of God. He enjoys the presence of God. He understands the pardon of God. And his conclusion is God must have the preeminence. When we talk about the glory of God coming down, when we talk about the, the name of Christ being exalted, that means everything revolves around Christ and Christ alone. What a great prayer. Take some time to look up those other Bible verses and do a study and reread through that chapter. It's a great prayer that Solomon offered up. May that be our heart's desire tonight as we get ready to go to the prayer. Amen. God bless you for listening so intently. Amen.